0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground with me Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Well this week we've just heard from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that the beginning of the end of Hamas is in sight in Gaza and presumably victory for the Israelis is imminent. We'll be asking whether he's right and whether a military victory can actually produce circumstances that will bring an end to the overall conflict.
1: This comes as the Israeli Defense Forces released figures on their casualties, which, as of Monday, were 101 dead and 1,593 wounded. That since October the 7th, they also claim to have killed 7,000 Hamas fighters. The IDF is now tightening its grip on Khan Yunis, the major southern city and closing in, they say, on the Hamas political leader in the Strip, Yahya Sinwar. Despite some alarm in Washington at the scale of civilian Palestinian casualties, support from the White House still seems rock solid, with the US vetoing a Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. Israel are therefore operating without any US-imposed timetable for finishing military operations in Gaza, at least for the moment, how close do you think they are to achieving their objectives all?
0: Well, it seems they're making considerable progress in strictly military terms. Those casualty figures uh, are quite extraordinary if the numbers of Hamas dead are accurate. Well, as you say, Patrick, they are since October the 7th. So, of course, the number of casualties since they invaded Gaza will obviously be smaller than that. But it's still a relatively tiny number. And what is not disputed are the number of Israeli dead. That means they're killing 70 of the enemy for every one of their soldier who dies. In his address, Netanyahu called on Hamas operatives to give themselves up, saying, don't die for Sinwar. There's been footage of dozens of men stripped of their underwear doing just that. But who they are is not entirely clear, and the numbers aren't very dramatic anyway. Meanwhile, although the main focus of the campaign is now in the south, there are still clashes going on in the north in the Jabalaya refugee camp, near Gaza City. And although Netanyahu is claiming Hamas is approaching its end, he's still cautioned that there's some way to go yet and that the war would continue for some time. Certainly, as you say, Patrick, whatever is happening behind the scenes, there's no significant pressure from the US to rein the IDF in. And they're showing their support in the most overt way by voting against that resolution in the Security Council for a humanitarian ceasefire. Britain, by the way, abstained. And even more emphatically, by sending $100 million worth of ammunition to replace depleted Israeli stocks, this emergency money is required, of course, because that overall package, which has been twinned with Ukraine, is currently being held up by Congress. Now, there are some reports in The Times, for example, that Biden has demanded that Netanyahu concludes his military action by the first week in January at the latest. Israeli security officials, on the other hand, believe the operations to take the remaining Hamas strongholds will last at least until the end of January. So it seems we may be some way off the so-called end to this military operation. But the question still remains, even with all this apparent progress on the ground, is Israel actually on the path to victory?
1: And It's a good question, Saul, isn't it? I was reminded in an article in The Nation magazine, that's a uh, very long-established progressive New York publication, uh, of what Henry Kissinger, the very recently late Henry Kissinger, said in 1969 about the war the U.S. was fighting against the Viet Cong in Vietnam. And he said, quotes, "...we fought a military war, they fought a political one. And in the process, we forgot one of the cardinal maxims of guerrilla war. The guerrilla wins if he does not lose." conventional army loses if he does not win. So I think there's a bit of that going on there. And I was also reminded, under my own steam this time, of the words the Roman historian Tacitus recorded as having been spoken by an enemy of the Roman Empire called Calgacus. And uh, he said that the Roman army's way of doing things was to destroy everything and, quotes, where they make a desert, they call it peace. I do wonder whether Israel is making this mistake of thinking that by flattening large parts of Gaza, they're actually achieving their end of destroying Hamas and solving their Gaza problem. As we've said from the beginning, haven't we, Saw that even if they succeed in killing or capturing every single man inside the current ranks of Hamas, they're not going to eradicate Palestinian armed opposition to Israel as long as the grievances that fuel it remain. They must know that. So what do you think is going on?
0: Well, at the beginning, we were all scratching our heads, wondering how Israeli strategy could bring about any kind of permanent settlement to the conflict and asking if there was indeed any plan other than revenge. But there are important voices now suggesting that there is a concealed objective behind all this. Israel may not have set out to do this. How could they, given that the war was triggered by the murderous raid launched by Hamas on the 7th of October? But the theory is that the current circumstances have opened the way to pursuing a policy that's been advocated by some of the extreme right in Israel, some of whom are partners in the coalition government led by Netanyahu. That is creating circumstances that would effectively cause the Palestinian population to leave Gaza en masse, making conditions so bad that Egypt, which so far, refused to entertain such a move, would have to let them in. So this envisages an event on a scale with what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the mass displacement of 700,000 Palestinians from their homes in the 1948 war. Now, this outcome is being suggested as a real possibility by the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, who warned the other day that we should, and I quote, expect public orders to break down soon and an even worse situation could unfold, including epidemic diseases and increased pressure for mass displacement into Egypt. Israeli officials have dismissed such ideas as outrageous and false. But what do you think, Patrick?
1: Well, I don't think that there's any uh, hidden plan to do that necessarily, welcome though it might be to the Israeli ultranationalists. But that might be the effect of the campaign as it's currently being waged. I mean, Gutierrez is right that if things stay on their current track, it's only going to get worse, a hell of a lot worse. Even if the bombings campaign becomes less lethal for civilians, the Israeli strategy has displaced four-fifths of the 2.4 million population. And this policy of ordering people into so-called safe zones is, is completely unrealistic. These are areas, they just sort of bare stretches of land. They haven't got any water, food, sanitation. There's no health care. And, and life there would pretty soon become unbearable, leaving uh, people with no choice but to flee. And you can imagine the scenes, can't you? But going back to that article I mentioned in The Nation, uh, which was written, by the way, by Tony Caron and Daniel Levy, well worth a read, its title is Israel is Losing This War. Now, the thesis is that even if it can claim a military victory, in broader terms, it will emerge from all this with its fundamental position weakened. Their argument is that in the medium term, at least, the process of normalizing relations with Arab states in the Gulf, the uh, Abraham Accords, will be disrupted. The global south will align solidly with the Palestinians. And far more significantly, in my view, in the US, the old bipartisan backing for Israel will break down, and military and diplomatic support will no longer be more or less guaranteed. What do you make of that, Saul?
0: Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right, Patrick. The second of those two things has been true for a long time, I think. There are very few friends of Israel in the global south. And anyway, Israel is used to this. So does it particularly bother them? I doubt it does. On the US front, however, whoever wins the presidential election next year is likely to be a firm supporter of Israel. At the moment, it's most likely to be between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. The former has proven once again that he's utterly loyal. The other is also very pro-Israel, though with him, you never know how long this will last. So, We can assume, I think, Patrick, that support for Israel will continue from the United States, but that's a very long way from coming to some kind of security solution, long-term solution, that is going to satisfy the Israeli population and, of course, on the other hand, the Palestinians. I mean, that's the real issue here and the issue we're debating in this episode, a so-called military victory Even the eradication of Hamas, which I think is unlikely, that is all the fighters killed, all the leaders incarcerated, uh, still doesn't really take us that far down the track as to how to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future, and frankly, how to counteract the many other enemies that Israel has on its doorstep.
1: Well, one thing I would say is I believe that Hamas could well emerge from this better than Israel. At the outset, we weren't just wondering about Israeli strategy, we were also puzzled by Hamas thinking, well, that's become clearer, hasn't it? So it, it now looks as if the 7th of October attacks were designed to bring the whole house tumbling down around them. It wasn't as quite as, quite as nihilistic as it, as it appeared, and senseless as it appeared to be, as well as, of course, amazingly cruel as it appeared to be at the beginning. If you think about it, they've never been interested in a two-state solution or anything like that, Hamas. Their raison d'etre is to reclaim the whole of Palestine before the Nakba and create an Islamic state between the river and the sea, as they say. After ruling Gaza for 17 years, they weren't really going anywhere. The longer it went on, they're basically the, the local power. Um, the further this idea was going to recede. There's no mileage for them in making Gaza work. Indeed, they risked being compromised uh, because in the way of normal way of things, they had to have daily dealings with the Israelis. So in a way, they're kind of, you know, they've entered into a sort of compromising relationship with the enemy. So in a way, this was a, you can look at it as being a sort of reversion to who they were originally, which is a resistance movement determined to drive out their old enemies And incidentally, part of this plan, part of the October the 7th plan, seems to have been to force the Palestinian Authority who run the uh, West Bank onto a more radical path. Now, Hamas have never rejected alliances with the PA, even though they've drove them out of Gaza. And when it suits them, um, they they can see purpose in, in forming a united front. For example, in the prisons, in Israeli prisons, there are strong bonds between the old PLO fighters of Fatah and the Hamas boys. And from what I hear, uh, the events in Gaza are going to create problems for the leadership. Mahmoud, very old, by the way, Mahmoud Abbas is uh, 88 years old. And its popular feeling, I think, is very much on the side of Gaza and Gazans and by extension Hamas. And I think that it's going to, they will be forced to actually take a, a, a less cooperative and a more aggressive line with Israel henceforth. But it's forgotten that there's been quite a lot of violence uh, in the West Bank while all this has been going on in Gaza. IDF raids so far, well, actually, this is quite an old statistic, but 260 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October the 8th. What do you think, so?
0: Well, I mean, you know, the slightly more optimistic uh, part of me, because I'm getting increasingly pessimistic of what of what's happening in Gaza, as I'm sure most of us are, Suggest that so far have Hamas overreached in terms of the destruction they brought down on on Gaza. I mean, you you could well be right, Patrick. This was all part of the plan, sort of got Dameron kind of end game in which uh, you know they've almost got nothing to lose. But could the consequence of that mean effectively that they are rejected by the Palestinians of Gaza? Now, while that would have been difficult to do while they still were in control there, the post conflict scenario, uh, albeit uh, with the possibility that they're allowed to return to their homes, which of course is one scenario you're suggesting the Israelis are, or at least the right in Israelis are hoping won't happen. But let's just say they do go back to their homes and they try and rebuild Gaza could they actually come to their own conclusion that actually Hamas has to be removed, or at least not allowed to return? And therefore, that extreme element of politics in in Gaza is removed. I I agree that that may be an optimistic view on all of this, because as you've always said, Patrick, um, violence tends to promote extremism. And therefore, we we will have the next layer of Hamas fighters or Hamas-like fighters. But, But who knows? That is one possible scenario. I mean, if we think about Germany in the Second World War, I know it's a slightly Extreme parallel. But there was ultimately a feeling among Germans that the Nazis had brought down an awful lot of disaster on them. And of course, in post Second World War politics, they were never again considered a, a viable force.
1: Okay, just on that question of, of homes to go back to, you know, one of the practical problems being faced is that there won't be homes for all of them to go back to because, you know, judging by the imagery and, and the research that's been done on the scale of, of the destruction of, of the t- domestic dwellings, etc there really will be no Gaza City uh, for a lot of Gaza City inhabitants to return to. So that's a, that's a real major obstacle that's going to be over, have to be overcome if Gaza is to remain in Palestinian hands, if you like. Well, that's it for part one. Join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions.
0: Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Trond Berkeland in Norway. He says, I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning. That's the Falkland series. And thank you for your well thought out analysis and reports from both Ukraine and Gaza. So the question is, as Palestinians have faced occupation, oppression, random arrests and a blockade for years, would it be fair to see Hamas as a resistance movement and not just random terrorists? Patrick, what do you think?
1: Well, that's certainly how Hamas present themselves. And it must be said Uh, Many Palestinians agree with that self-assessment, if you like. It's very hard to kind of view them in that light, given the events of October the 7th and the kind of, you know, sadistic glee, uh, which has now become clear, accompanied the the bloodshed. But at the same time, we have to bear in mind that, you know, this Israeli Israeli occupation of of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, I mean, they, they... appear appear technically to have left, but still the place uh, both places are very much under Israeli control one way or another all that's been normalised in terms of media coverage it 's not news, so all the daily problems and the daily humiliations of, of living in those circumstances for the Palestinians I think tend to have been forgotten and there's also another story which is not very much covered, which is the growing aggression. Of all the many thousands of Israeli settlers who uh, have set up home on what international law says is uh, in illegal settlements, and who routinely attack Palestinian villages, etc., etc., they're essentially protected by the IDF and act pretty much with impunity. It's not just me saying this. This is what uh, is pretty well much accepted by a lot of friends of Israel who are who are enemies of the settlers who are deeply critical of the whole settlement program and of the conduct of the settlers themselves. And I'll just quote one uh, Israeli on the general subject of the condition uh, of the Palestinians. And this is the uh, former speaker of the Knesset, that's the Israeli parliament, Avraham Berg, who said some years back um, about Israel's policy in the West Bank and Gaza. And I'm quoting here, even if the Arabs lower their heads and swallow shame and anger forever it won't work a structure built on callousness will inevitably collapse on itself so he's saying what a lot of i suppose you could categorize them as progressive israelis are saying which is it's not just bad for the palestinians it's actually bad for israel
0: as well okay we've got one here from peter lovell which is uh, more a statement really than a question but it relates to our comparison with the actions of the israelis of course in gaza with the blitz and our response to uh, that is the british response in terms of its lack of criticism, certainly during the war, of the of the bombing campaign of Germany and the fact that, of course, a, an awful lot of German civilians and you could say German innocents lost their lives as a result of that. So Peter says, um, I think the context is key for this comparison and reminded me of a photo I recently saw of a British serviceman returning home in 1940 to find his twin five-year-old girls had been killed when their school had been hit during a German raid. His entire family wiped out. He apparently died in the 1970s, having never remarried. So Peter says, I doubt he would have had much sympathy when the thousand bomber raids were levelling German cities in the following years. All in all, by the time the bomber campaign started in World War II, there was very little sympathy to be found in Britain, even though the numbers killed in the Blitz were dwarfed by those in German towns and cities. we of course, made that point. Now, this, says Peter, is the same in Israel. They've suffered rocket attacks for decades with little retaliation, suicide bombers and other attacks. So when 7 October happened, it's not just that civilians were killed, but the manner and utter barbarity with which they were killed and the women raped. I don't think, he says, we should judge the apparent insensitivity of Israelis towards civilian casualties in Gaza too harshly.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's something, the point we made ourselves I mean, in the last podcast, that it's rather insensitive to start sort of citing historical precedents and all the rest of it in, in these circumstances and to ask Israelis at this moment to start asking themselves why it is that there is so much ill feeling towards them from the Palestinians. So, yeah, we do take your point there.
0: So we've got a question from Jeffrey Sterling. Listening to your podcast, he Googled NACPA 2023. And the top hit is from Abiy Dikta, a Likud minister, and that, of course, is the ruling party uh, in Israel at the moment, stating, Gaza, NACPA 2023, that's how it'll end. So uh, what do you think of that, Patrick? I mean, is that quite alarming to read a government minister saying that? And does this sort of back up the point you made earlier on in the podcast?
1: Yeah, I suppose it's, it is troubling hearing that it's coming from a Likud minister, uh, who are in the spectrum of Israeli right-wing politics, are towards I suppose you could say the moderate end. You might you might expect to hear it from one of the three ultra-nationalist coalition partners in the government. So, but on the on the broader question of the Nakba, the Nakba means sort of like catastrophe, disaster, and it's sort of being bandied around a lot at the moment. I think some people have been saying that. You know, there is a sort of underlying, I suppose you call it a conspiracy, really, to engineer a uh, a complete clearance of the Palestinian territories from the river to the sea. This is a term that's been, is, is often applied uh, to Hamas, but it's also really what uh, is at the heart of uh, these right-wing parties' policies. They want to see an Israel that extends within those geographical boundaries. But I think it's, it's completely unrealistic. I mean, even if they wanted it to happen It's one thing looking at a scenario where Gaza, uh, there might be a massive exodus from Gaza into Egypt, but uh, that's never going to happen in the West Bank. So I think that is going to be an ultra-nationalist dream for the time being.
0: Okay, we've got an email from Daniel Abrams. It seems to me that you continue the press silence on the ongoing rocket attacks on Israel that are not causing mass casualties because Israel, unlike Gaza, Hamas, has invested in both civil and military defence. Somewhere between 125,000 and 250,000 Israelis have been displaced by the conflict, says Daniel, certainly both in absolute numbers and percentages, nothing like what is happening in Gaza, but still worthy of note. And then Daniel goes on to say, to all the people who say you can't kill an idea, I'd like to know how many Cathars that they've run into lately. We also seem to have done a pretty good job on Nazis in Germany and Japanese expansionists. Um, Patrick, this is a response to a a point you keep making, that you can kill people but not an idea in terms of this kind of resistance, this extreme resistance. Uh, What do you think?
1: Yeah, well, Daniel, there are repeating historical analogies you can sort of pick and choose the ones you want really to make your case Uh, for example on the Cathar front uh, yeah well that's that's true and uh, even going back to that Calcagus quote that I was mentioned earlier from uh, Tacitus the fact was the Romans actually were pretty good at crushing local patriotism local identities um, to the point where you know most of their conquered peoples were actually pretty keen to uh, join the the Roman Empire and, and become sort of Roman citizens. But you question the proposition that it's uh, very hard to kill an idea. Well, I would say that Zionism could be cited as proof that you can't kill an idea. I mean, look at all the, all the difficulties it faced, and uh, it survived, it endured, and the dream was realized. So I think that Far-right Israelis uh, should bear that in mind when they're thinking about the Palestinians. Uh, we've got one here from Tom Martin from Rodney in Ontario, Canada. And knowing uh, of your deep interest in naval history, as <laughs> he says, yes, my little town is indeed named after your Admiral George Bridges Rodney, First Baron Rodney. Why, he has no idea. Anyway, to his question... He says, uh, keeping with the theme of historical analogies, I've been wondering if there is one for the recent decision in the U.S. Senate to block a funding package for Ukraine. Before this decision, I saw American support for Ukraine as a modern version of the arsenal of democracy. Do you think I was being premature or naive with this analogy? What do you think, Saul?
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there's no doubt we've said before in the pod, Patrick, but certainly both of us are well aware. uh, I think most of the listeners are too. It did take America quite a long time to get into the Second World War. There had to be some pretty serious provocation from Japan to get them to do that. And I I think you've still got this issue now that some people are absolutely convinced that Western civilization, democracies more generally are in danger. And that is America's strategic interests are very well served by backing the Ukraine war of course uh, to a certain extent what's going on in the Middle East too Um, but the point holds good there were people in 1939 who felt very similarly Uh, Roosevelt may well have been one of them but he also realized politically it was going to be very difficult to get the American people to that place where they understood that a war that wasn't actually happening on their borders did need to be fought and I think the analogy does hold true because Uh, There's no question that the US still is the arsenal of democracy, Uh, the amount of money that it's already put into the Ukraine war and that it's being expected or asked to put in uh, from this point forward. But you've really got this disconnect between a minority of people who absolutely understand the importance of fighting well away from America's borders and those at home who are saying, why on earth are we sending our money uh, for people to fight overseas in a war that isn't in our vital strategic interests? So, it is still the arsenal of democracy. I do. Uh, I am pretty optimistic that money will be released to, to continue the war in Ukraine, as no doubt we'll be discussing on Friday in the Ukraine episode of the podcast. But also that this this linked package with Israel will ultimately pass. It's an awful lot of money, and I, you know, I was speaking only today actually with a, a former marine officer who, you know, is kind of raising his eyebrows at the thought of spending what he described as half the U.S. Marine Corps budget. Actually, that that strikes me as an awful big budget for a single part of the American military. However, however big it is, but no, it's a good analogy, Tom. I, I think that there is a danger, of course, that people in the Congress are going to not understand that the, you know the vital necessity of fighting of Ukraine continuing its war against Russia with with American support. But America is the arsenal of democracy, uh, and it needs to understand why it's useful for America to fight so far from its shores. But just to Carry on. You mentioned the Rodney connection, the fact that Tom is from Rodney in Ontario. I mean, Rodney's a really interesting character because he came from a sort of, you know, relative impecunious, well-born, but impecunious background and got a lot of flack throughout his career by being much more interested in prize money than he was, you know, on actually fighting effectively and strategically for the Royal Navy in the 18th century. He's best known, of course, for commanding the great victory in 1782 at the Battle of the Saints, which saved Jamaica for the British Empire. And you may ask, Patrick, well, why are we so interested in that? And why did it matter so much? Well, Jamaica, of course, is one of the sugar islands. And at that stage anyway, something like a third of all the money coming into Britain's economy came from the sugar islands. So it was an absolutely vital victory. And it also followed on of course, relatively soon after what effectively was the end game of the US War of Independence. So it was a chance for the uh, Royal Navy to get back on its feet again. And Rodney also, uh, his other Claim to fame is he's the admiral credited with the tactic of breaking the opponent's line. This is this is of course an innovation, a naval innovation, always accorded to Nelson. But it appears, uh, or at least some naval historians believe, that actually Rodney was the first man to do that. Keith Cook from New Zealand, uh, and he's asking the question about the supposed targeting of a Reuters crew by the Israelis. Now, this I think happened. Not that long after the initial Hamas incursion into Israel, when a team of Reuters journalists were killed by Israeli tank fire. Now Keith goes on to say, at the time of the email, the IDF were investigating and and had not made any comment. But his question is more of a sort of general question about the uh, nature of war reporting, which I'm afraid is going to have to come your way, Patrick. Uh, And he asks about the news crews. That's probably journalists more generally do they request uh, let it be known where they are going do they have a strategic awareness of where they are positioning themselves in other words do they let the israeli military know that they're going to be there um i like to get a sense of how gung-ho they could be says keith as in disregarding their safety to get stories could you expand on this for us patrick what's your experience of that
1: yeah, I think this is a reference to uh, the killing of Issam Abdullah, who is a Reuters uh, journalist. This was not in Gaza, but this was up on the border, inside the Lebanese border. He was there with some other Reuters journalists who were wounded, uh, covering the Hezbollah IDF exchanges there. But in general, uh, there have been journalists killed in Gaza. As one reports, 63 journalists have been killed. These will be local journalists who, who will uh, actually have been brought up there so they're they're reporting for local and international news organisations, but in general, it's a very dangerous business being a journalist in a war zone. The IDF over the years have killed a number of journalists. Uh, James Miller, a British filmmaker, two thousand six in Gaza, and Al Jazeera, well-known Al Jazeera female journalist, Shireen Abu uh, only last year in Janine. So, but I mean, they're not unique in doing that. I was speaking from personal experience, in Iraq in 2003, Terry Lloyd, ITN reporter, was killed in southern Iraq when I was there by Americans, by an American just opening up on, on his vehicle, even though it's clearly marked as being a, a press vehicle. And that question you raised about, can you let the military know that you're in the area and therefore, you know, ask them to take special care? I mean, that's just, frankly just unrealistic. As the experience in Iraq showed uh, in Baghdad, when the American troops arrived in Baghdad, a tank opened fire on a um, hotel window where it had been flagged up. This was the Reuters office, and they uh, can't remember the uh, exact casualties figures, but this was a situation where it was, you know, Reuters were able to actually get the information to the Americans that this is where they were operating from and uh, to take care, and that didn't make any difference either. So, fundamentally it's uh, you know it's a high risk occupation war reporting uh, people who are gung-ho and take extra risks don't last very long and the reality of war is that you know fired up soldiers don't really hesitate for very long in tr- drawing a distinction between someone who definitely is a threat and someone who might be a threat before pulling the trigger.
0: Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when Patrick and I really will be teaming up to talk about Ukraine for the first time in a couple of weeks and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.